or not be feelings of wellness, but in a perfect Savior who, as we gaze upon, uh, gives us peace that passes all understanding, that ultimately allows us to sing with real conviction that it is well with our souls. Father, I thank you for your spirit who dwells in us, and I thank you for your spirit who works among us. God, please, even in the next little bit, as we open your word once again like we do every single week, God, please work in hearts in this room that uh, uh, as they... uh, As we spend time in your word, that we would know you better, and as we know you better, we would love you more and ultimately serve you with our lives. So God, please bless this time, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's crazy to say, but uh, we are actually one week away from being done with this series, uh, Last Words, and... uh, and, and what I want to do is we start out this essentially second to last week. Uh, I want you to uh, think once again about this whole concept of last words. You're with people. If, uh, if you place yourself into each of these scenes, which... Um, I don't know, maybe I'm the weird when I read scripture and I try to as best as possible imagine myself there, whether I'm there listening to a letter being written among a congregation or I'm there listening to this speech. But you're there with people that you will never see again, especially for the ones that we've considered all summer, never, which is hard for us to grasp. You think this is somebody I've known for years, somebody I've seen every day, every week, and there's a really good chance I'm never going to see them again. What happens in that final moment? Not just that last day, but those closing moments. The time has come to say goodbye. In that moment, there is this now or never sense to it. Sometimes these last words are bitter, where the person leaving calls out those that they're leaving behind. We've seen a few this summer. Uh, I think of Moses and I think of Samuel instantly. But other times they're bittersweet, the good kind of farewells that evoke feelings like how my boy Austin Uh, described uh, how he felt about us moving to Albania. And he said, I'm happy, sad. These bittersweet moments. Scripture has those too. David and Jonathan's farewell, for example, or Jesus with his disciples. These good kinds. They're with people that we love. We... Might be sad to say goodbye, but we're grateful for the times that God has given us together. And in these times, a couple things typically happen in this closing moment with people that you love as they're giving their final words. They look back on all that you had shared together, and then they look forward, and oftentimes... Challenge those ones that they're leaving. I might be going, but I want to challenge you. 
This is what typically happens in those bittersweet farewells. And what we are going to find today is that very thing, one of those happy, sad moments where there's looking back, but there's also looking forward. If you would, turn with me to Acts chapter 20, where we find Paul, Apostle Paul's last words to some of his most beloved brothers, the elders of the church in Ephesus. In chapter 20, verse 17 of Acts, it says, Now from Miletus, Paul was here in Miletus, and he sends to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not count my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again Therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver, or gold, or apparel, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul's last words follow that familiar structure, the looking back in verses 18 through 27, and then looking forward from 28 through 35, and that's what I want us to consider here. Paul's testimony is really the looking back. I've heard somebody describe what Paul shares as really actions and attitudes. That's really Paul's testimony. He gives the works that he did, but then he also talks about the attitude that he had, and I think we can all learn from it. He says in the opening In verse 18, you yourselves know how I lived among you. Then he gives these two actions. He says, I I served, I was serving among you, and I was declaring among you, which is interesting because 
I'm not so sure this is uh, how most of us would describe how we live, right? Our last moments with people that we love and we say, remember how I lived, remember my service and remember my teachings. But that's exactly what Paul gave because to him, living is synonymous with ministering. This is the equation in his head. For him, living equals ministering. Therefore, when he says, you know how I lived, you all saw me, right? What did they see? They saw ministry. So much action, ministry of works, as well as ministry of words. For Paul, to live was to minister. Could you say that with your final words? Is life equal to ministry for you? Or are you living for something wholly different? Maybe popularity. Maybe beauty. Maybe power. Maybe money. Living equals fill in the blank. Paul's actions should convict us, but even more convicting just might be the attitude that he had while he ministered. He didn't just go about busy, right? He had a heart to him that he then follows it up with in verse 19, saying how he served. He says, with all humility, with tears and in trials, right? His art attitude created these emotions, and these ultimately all led to perseverance, even amidst trials, which made me stop and wonder, if we were to put ourselves in Paul's shoes, what would our attitudes be? Paul, this apostle, which is this really special place, especially within the this establishment of the church, to write apostle in front of your name is a significant thing. And, uh, and even among the others who called themselves apostles, Paul was the one who Jesus called in this really unique way as he's on the road, right? And Jesus appears to him. And he calls him to be his apostle in this special, unique way. How would most people respond to something like that? Probably a little bit of pride, a little bit of arrogance. Our hearts are so quick to become puffed up when something special happens to us, especially when others see it. Walking around, apostle, specially chosen by Jesus in a vision. But that's not at all how Paul carried himself. Instead, his service is marked by an attitude of humility. Humility, right? Not just humility. What's the likelihood that, that your, your service would also be marked by a heart of tears, right? A, an emotion uh, that, uh, that as you work, you just can't help but through your strain and through your love for others, you can't help but be moved to tears in your serving and in your teaching. This was Paul. I think for many, they'd be so caught up in their own impressiveness that their heart would not break for anybody. 
Pride and self-centeredness does not lead to a broken heart for the hurting and the helpless. That sort of heart only breaks when the world is not appropriately in awe of how amazing you think you are. It's pretty incredible Paul had this sort of attitude, and yet he's not even done. He says, I also served with trials. Trials at the hands of his own Jewish brothers, he says. The people who used to be his allies are now his tormentors. And we know the sorts of trials he put up with because he documents it on multiple occasions. For instance, 2 Corinthians 6, 4 through 5, he says, But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. How could somebody ever put up with all of this if but not for a clear calling from the Lord and a humble heart? Paul says, remember how I served? Remember how I taught? Verse 20, declared, I taught, I testified, declaring anything that was profitable, teaching corporately as well as in one-on-one settings in their homes, testifying to all Jews and Gentiles alike. Paul's life was saturated with the ministry of words. Yeah, he's shown the light of Christ for sure, with the way that he carried himself, but he also sprinkled his conversation with gospel salt, which I can't help uh, as I was thinking through this, but remember what, uh, what maybe was said originally uh, with a good heart, but is now kind of one of the most fraudulent terms and, or, or sayings in Christendom. You probably heard it, preach the gospel, and when necessary, use words. Like I said, there's a chance that when it was first spoken, they actually meant it with a good heart and the emphasis being on their life. But what has happened today is so many Christians have taken that understanding and used it as this spiritually sounding, this spiritual sounding excuse never to open their mouth. That's not Paul. Paul taught whenever, wherever, and to whomever. And he wanted to make sure that these brothers remembered this example that he set in his life. And then in verse 22, his his, his point of view shifts. He says, this is where I've been, and this is where I'm going. More action, but this time that action is heading to Jerusalem. He says, I don't know what's going to happen to me when I get there. Which is kind of true. But he actually sort of does know. He knows prison and afflictions await him because God's spirit, one way or another, we don't know how, has told him this at every stop leading up to this point. And actually, if you go to the very next chapter in Acts 21, you find in verse 10 this prophet named Agabus who comes to Paul, pulls out his belt, ties his own hands and ankles with this belt and says, Paul, just like this Just like I am tied up, you will be tied up as well and handed over to the Gentiles. The very response these Ephesian elders will have in the conclusion of Paul's last words is the same response that his 
his traveling companions had with him in chapter 21. Verse 12, Luke, who's the author who is with him, writes and says, when we heard this, which is what Agabus prophesied, he said, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Verse 13, then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And I love what Luke says in verse 14. He says, and since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Paul was doing here what he had done his entire life of ministry. He was living with a singular focus, which was God's will being done in his life. How could he live like that? Not letting the tears of his friends dissuade him. That question isn't asked. It's begging to be asked, though, and and that's why he actually answers this question in verse 24. I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This was Paul's attitude in his action. And this wasn't some sort of a new development in his life either. He said it in his letter to the Philippians. In Philippians 2.17, he says, Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering... Upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Why? Because he had just told the Philippians one chapter prior in 121, for to me to live is Christ. So death is gain. And he'll say it again in his final words here on this earth. These are his final words to the Ephesian elders and the last words that we have recorded come in his letter to Timothy in 2 Timothy, and in chapter 4, verse 6 through 7, he says what essentially he had talked about in Philippians. He had uh, explained once again here with Ephesian elders, and he says in 2 Timothy 4, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I'm going to say this, I don't want to make it crystal clear, because you all have heard this before. It is impossible to live at the center of God's will if you value your life more than you value Christ. It's impossible. I don't know when, but the day will come, that moment will come where you can choose following the Lord or following the world or following your own worldly desires, and in that moment, because you value your life more than you value Christ, you're going to walk right out of God's will. If Paul had a life verse, I really think it'd be verse 24 right here in Acts 20. All of his actions throughout his entire life and all of his attitudes can be explained by that singular sentiment. And then in verse 25, continues on and he says look I know it's coming therefore verse 26 
I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Now, I don't know what God's calling on your life might be, but Paul knew his. And he said it, right? He said his calling was to testify to the gospel of the grace of God, and he says, I've done it. Therefore, brothers, looking at these elders, whatever happens, 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 and it's between you and God now. Paul was able to do something that unfortunately few ever do. He was able to fulfill his calling completely is an incredible thing for Paul and it's an incredible goal for each of us when our final moment comes to be able to look back over our life and say I've done all that you've called me to God but Paul didn't just look back he looked forward to right he looked to the future of these dear brothers of his and he challenges them in two different ways, but he basically says the exact same thing. In verse 28, he says, pay careful attention. Then in verse 31, he says, be alert. Basically the same thing, right? In other words, you better watch yourself. Why? Well, because there are threats from the outside and there are threats from within. Threats from within or from outside. In verse 29, he says, there are fierce wolves that are gonna come in among you, not sparing the flock. We know this one. Right, he's talking about false prophets and false teachers, wolves in sheep's clothing, always a danger to the body of Christ. And if you're an elder sitting listening to this, you're like, yeah, I've seen it before and I'm sure I'll see it again. And then Paul says something else. He says, but there's also going to be threats that come from within, verse 30, and from among your own selves. Which most... In fact, all that I read would agree. Paul is saying, you elders, some of you are going to go astray and you're going to twist scripture and lead people away with you. Which would have been almost unbelievable to hear, wouldn't it? Kind of like Jesus in the upper room saying, one of you is going to deny me. To be there, think, how could that possibly be? We all love you. How could we deny you? Right? These elders would be like, how could that happen? We're faithful elders. How would we ever lead people astray? And yet Paul says it's going to happen. And you know what? Within five to ten years it does. Because he writes about it. First Timothy. One, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Again, Second Timothy. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me. This is Asia, right? Ephesus. He says at the beginning, right, when I first set foot in Asia, he's talking about the very same churches, and he's calling out what most would agree are the, the, some of the leaders within the church. He says, you're all aware that they all in Asia turned away from me, among whom, because these guys are particularly notable because they were your leaders, Phagellus and Hermogenes. And again, their talk will spread like gangrene among them are Hymenaeus, he mentioned in 1 Timothy, once again, and Philetus, a new, a new one, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happening, happened, upsetting the faith of some, exactly what Paul told them. 
five, ten years before as he said his goodbyes to them. If there's a lesson to take away from what Paul is saying here, it's this. Be alert. For there's always potential that wolves from outside and frauds from within can ravage the body of Christ. If it happened then, it can happen now. So stay close to God and his word. It's exactly what he says, right? He says, and now I commend you to God and to his word, to the grace of God, right? It's this idea to commend is to entrust or to hand over. It's just really a tender moment that maybe we don't realize because what he's actually saying is essentially he's doing the same thing that a, a, a father of the bride does with his daughter, right? Which, which for a girl and her dad who have a good relationship is, as you guys know, one of the sweetest, but for the dad, one of the saddest moments, especially the ceremony. These are men Paul has led for three years and what he's saying is he's saying, all right, God, they're yours now. Or from their perspective, he's saying, all right, man, the time has come. I've led you for these last three years, but you're God's now. Handing them over. It's a sad moment. We know it's sad because of what happens next, verse 36 through 38. They're on their knees. They're praying. They're crying, kissing, hugging, right, to steal a... A couple of lines from poetry, and sorry if it's a little cheesy, but these are what came to my mind. Parting is such sweet sorrow. That was their experience, right? And another, better to have loved and lost than to have never loved at all. With Christ as their center, there was real love, and there was real parting, and it was exactly as so many of us have heard, goodbyes described. So as we wrap this up, and I have to roll here, uh, four lessons. Pray that you could say living is ministering. Pray, because God has to do that work in you. That's where it starts. And then say, God, now help me to look at my life and to see where my life is out of, out of line with this for a second. Live with a singular focus. God's will done in your life. Once again, you got to pray for this. But you can also Look at your life and begin to ask, God, where am I pursuing my own will rather than your will? God, might this be the prayer of my life that no matter what your will might be, that that's what I'd want. Third, God and his word are enough. I skipped over it, but that's what Paul says. He says, this is all that you need. All that you need for ministry as well as to prepare you for your eternal inheritance. God and his word are enough. Paul left them. They didn't need him. They had all that they needed when he entrusted them over to their creator as well as the living word. Lastly, live the type of life that makes people cry at your farewell, which sounds kind of cheesy. But for those who love the Lord, this sort of thing happens, right? That's the kind of life that you want to live where you sacrifice so much and loved so selflessly that when they look forward to your departure, they'll see this gaping hole in their life that they'll say, thank you, God, for the time we spent together, and they'll cry. Let me pray, then we'll break you guys up into groups. Father, thank you so much for your word and for a faithful example that Paul has set. May we imitate him as he imitated Christ 
And might we take these lessons to heart and live more fully for you because of it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Break them into groups. I'm out of here. And the band knows.